Welcome to Southside Community Church. Enjoy our Sunday morning message. So last week we began a new series called Life in the Kingdom. And Life in the Kingdom is an intentional slow walk, which is what we do here at Southside, an intentional slow walks. An intentional slow walk through the Sermon on the Mount, which is found in Matthew 5 through 7, the three chapters. It's Jesus giving one of his longest sermons in the Gospels. And what, what he does in the Sermon on the Mount is he gives ethics, he gives ethics for how Christians are meant to live. And so for the foreseeable future, we are going to take a slow stroll through the ethics of the kingdom, how we are meant to live in relation to who we are. That's what the Sermon on the Mount is. It's how you're meant to live in relation to who you actually are. When John Stott, an amazing English theologian, describes the Sermon on the Mount, he says that Christians are meant to live a counterculture to the world. The Sermon on the Mount is the most complete description anywhere in the New Testament of the Christian counterculture. Here is a Christian value system, an ethical standard, and all that comes with it. How you look at money and how you look at sex, and all of these things of which are totally at odds with those of the non-Christian world. So when you think of the Sermon on the Mount, you're looking at an ethical standard that's calling you to be counter-cultural. You're meant to look different. Last week, Greg described it by saying, the Sermon on the Mount is designed to obliterate any sort of permission we have to be a lukewarm Christian. When you read the Sermon on the Mount, it's meant to kind of shock you a little bit. It's meant to overwhelm you. It's meant for you to be like, eeeh. There's, I'm not really sure where I'm at on this stuff. That's the point. Jesus accomplishes two overarching themes in the Sermon on the Mount that help us obliterate any sort of permission to be a lukewarm Christian. He teaches what the law of God actually requires. It's much harder than the Pharisees thought. It's much harder than the Pharisees thought. It's much harder than a bumper sticker that goes on a car that do these ten things, And you got it figured out. Way harder than that. And then he teaches that it is completely impossible to accomplish these requirements on your own. Jesus does not make the law easier. He makes it infinitely harder. And the reason that it's harder is because according to kingdom ethics, according to kingdom ethics, God has always wanted your heart before He wants your actions. He always wants your heart before He wants your action. Actually, God cares way more about the motivation than what you actually do. Which is completely countercultural to the world. The world says it doesn't matter what's in your heart. Just do a bunch of things for us. God cares about what your motivation for the good thing... And it's kind of scary because what it actually means is that you can do things that seemingly look good and if your heart is in the wrong place, God is looking at the intentions of your heart. And that good thing, some places in the Bible, it's called filthy rags. Because your heart isn't the motivation for what you're doing. It's harder because God looks at the heart. 
The Pharisees' way of living is a much easier way than kingdom life because you can make a list of commands and you can do them. I mean, that's simple. If you just found the seven things that you were really good at in the Christian world and wrote them down on your fridge and you could check it off every single day, and that's what being a Christian was, man, we'd, we'd all have A pluses. Because that's simple. You can discipline yourself enough. But the Sermon on the Mount is meant to show that the Christian life is not a list of rules that you must do to have favor with God. It's not a list of rules that you must do to have favor with God. The Sermon on the Mount is about hearts that are being genuinely transformed by a rest that comes from God. It is meant to overwhelm you and force you into rest. It's meant to make you feel like, I cannot do it. St. Augustine or Augustine. Does anyone know how this guy says his name? What, can someone give me... Sam, what do you think? I just want to know what you think. Augustine. Alright, I'm going with Augustine. Sam, Sam is the, the expert of the day. So, St. Augustine famously said, Our hearts are restless until they find rest in you. Our hearts are restless until they find rest in you. Jesus means to overwhelm your flesh. The Sermon on the Mount is meant to overwhelm your flesh. It's meant to overwhelm your heart. It's meant to make you feel restless. Because, on the opposite side, He brings salve or balm to your spirit. Your hearts are restless because it's impossible to do these things that God says you have to do on your own. And you find rest when you see that it's Jesus accomplishing them on your behalf. Jesus means to expose the depths of your heart. So when we go through these three chapters, you're meant to look inside and see how my heart is actually not where I thought it was. But He also means to turn dark hearts into light. It's an amazing thing that happens in the Sermon on the Mount. A life that makes decisions by a heart that's being continuously made more like Jesus is much harder than checking boxes. But it is infinitely more rewarding. Because not only are the things that you do reflective of good things around you, but inwardly you have peace and joy and happiness. You do those things freely. You're not gritting your teeth through them. You do them because God's changing you in a good way. That's what the Sermon on the Mount is meant to be. Last week we... Uh, Greg did a great uh, job with the overview and teaching on the Beatitudes. And this morning I get to teach Matthew 5, 13 through 16, salt and light. So if you have your Bibles, you can turn to Matthew 5, verses 13 through 16. If you don't have your Bibles, you can listen. And if you don't have your Bible and you want to read it, it should be on the notes. So let's go. Matthew 5, 13 through 16. You are the salt of the earth. But if salt has lost its taste, how shall its saltiness be restored? It's no longer good for anything except to be thrown out and trampled under people's feet. You are the light of the world. A city set on a hill cannot be hidden. Nor do people light a lamp and put it under a basket, but on a stand, and it gives light to all in the house. In the same way, let your light shine before others, so that they may see your good works and give glory to your Father who is in heaven. 
If the Beatitudes describe who a Christian is, the salt and light metaphors describe what type of influence a Christian is supposed to have. So Jesus, he's way better at writing sermons than I am. I mean, it's incomparable. So he does this thing where he teaches on the Beatitudes, and what he's doing is showing you what a Christian is meant to look like. And then the very next thing that he does is he says, in light of who you are, this is how you are meant to live. And that's what the salt and light metaphors are meant to do. And here's the heart of the metaphor. Here's the the most simple way that I could understand it myself, how my life is meant to be. And it's in your notes. And this is what it is. Wherever you happen to be, at any given moment, is made a better place because you're there. Wherever you happen to be, at any given moment, is made a better place because you are there. Now, that is overwhelming because it means it's not meant to be a worse place because you are there. It's meant to be that when you go to a place and you inhabit it, it's better. When you walk into a room, people are excited that you're there. They're not like, oh, this is, this is going to be bad. That's not, Christians are not meant to be known like that. You're meant to be known that as you walk into a place and people know you, they're like, that, this is going to be great. I'm so happy that person's here. Wherever you are, wherever you happen to be at any given moment is made a better place because you're there. That's the heart of the command. From a 30,000 foot view of the passage, we learn a few things about the world that we live in. And I want to say this, understanding what Jesus says about the world is absolutely essential. Absolutely t- essential to how you live. Because if you think that Jesus thinks the world is like, you know, it's like 70% good, 30% bad. I'm not really sure. You've got to kind of find the nuance and the crevices. And you just, we have all these conversations about it. And then we figure out, you know, if you have those types of ideas about the world, you're probably not going to take drastic steps in your life. Jesus makes some pretty harsh claims about the world, actually, in salt and light. And it's very important to understand what he thinks about the earth and about the world without him. This is what he means by saying the world needs salt and the world needs light, is that the world is in a constant state of decay. The world is in a constant state of decay. And the world is dark with no light of its own. Our culture teaches us that the world that we live in is in a constant state of moral evolution and enlightenment. Jesus affirms the opposite. The world claims to be morally good and increasing, and increasing. Jesus claims that the world is in a constant state of death. The world claims that it is always on the brink of new enlightenment. I mean, I've been on this, if you've been in my community group or you're just around my age and we have social media, Instagram stories are the worst place to live. The worst place to live because you are going to find a hundred people who have the new, they're right on the verge of the new thing that's going to bring perfect enlightenment. It's enticing. I know it's enticing because I scroll through it myself. The world claims to be on the new brink of enlightenment. Jesus claims that the world is stumbling around in constant darkness. 
Completely countercultural. The world stumbling around in darkness and is in moral decay, and that's why Christians are not supposed to buy what the world is selling. And it is so enticing to buy what the world is selling. We are sold a way of life that claims happiness, satisfaction, and success. If you do this, this, and this, or if you do that, that, and that, if you have the perfect you know, discipline and routine in the morning, it's going to set you up for perfect success. And those things are good when they're redeemed, but without Christ, those things lead to a way of hopelessness, destruction, and despair. Because it's easy to do things, it's hard to have a heart that's being transformed. The world thinks that it's on an upward trajectory, but Jesus affirms that day by day, the world is actually becoming less and less how it was meant to be. So what do we do with a world that is in decay and stumbling around in darkness? What do we do? Jesus gives overwhelming command after overwhelming command. He says the world's in decay and the world's in the darkness. So go be the salt of the decaying earth and the light that shines in the darkness. Now I don't know about you, but that's overwhelming to me because I play sports and I'm competitive and people know me because I'm loud and tall. I mean, it's just one of those things. It's overwhelming to me to think about that every moment of every day, I'm supposed to represent Christ. Because if one thing goes wrong for me, I don't know if this, I mean, I assume some of you are in the same boat. But for me, it takes one thing to go wrong. And my representation of salt and light becomes decay and it becomes dark. I have failed that test over and over again. Over and over again. It's overwhelming to me. Reading this when I was like 18 was like doable. Reading this this week was so convicting that I'm meant to be salt and light wherever I go. And reading the Sermon on the Mount is meant to show me just how much I can't do it in my own strength. Just how much I can't be salt and light on my own. I tried. I, I argued with an umpire for like three seconds yesterday and one of my best friends, Sean, was like, just stop doing that. I'm like, you're right. What am I doing? It's softball. We're old. <laughs> it's that quick. So let's spend some time. Wait, hold on. I have, no, I have another thing I want to say. The purpose of this morning's message, the purpose of it, the purpose of salt and light is to show you that the properties of salt and light that are in you are not something that you were able to conjure up. The purpose of salt and light is to show you that you cannot be salt and you cannot be light on your own. It's only possible because the Spirit produces it in you. So let's talk about salt and light. Verse 13. You are the salt of the earth. But if salt has lost its taste, how shall its saltiness be restored? So traditionally, this passage is taught from the understanding that salt in the, in the first century, century was primarily a preservative. I'm sure some people put it on their steaks, but it was primarily a preservative. Salt was one of the most important resources of the first century. If you didn't have salt, or if salt did not do its job, your food supply would ruin all of your meat would go bad. 
So what salt was, it was a way to preserve something that was in a natural state of decay. They used salt to put it on anything that would naturally decay, which was primarily meat. It was a, it was a universal understanding of salt. Every culture would know the importance of salt. Jesus would have watched his mom preserve their food with salt, which is a pretty cool thing to think about. It all made sense. No salt equaled decay. Now, this is going to date me from some of the younger people, and I don't know where this is going to put me with everyone else, but Oregon Trail was this game that I played in. Thanks, Kara and Brian. Love it. Uh, We played it on the computer in elementary school at Worcester Christian. Mac Moore might have been there. Yes. Love it so much. And somehow, I never made it past Kansas, and I always, my characters always died because they ran out of salt. I was like, this was the worst way. Like, I didn't get trampled by a deer. I didn't accidentally, like, my wagon wheel didn't break. I didn't, like, get run over by a boar. I don't know if there's boar in Kansas. I always died because my meat supply would ruin. I mean, how frustrating is that? You're just like, I'm just trying to make it to Oregon. I don't even know what was in Oregon. <laughs> it must have been great. It was, was it a gold rush or something? I don't know. But I remember this, that the reason that my characters wouldn't make it is because they ran out of salt, because everything would die. The first thing to go would be my meat, and then the next thing to go would be me and my family. <laughs> this is partially what Jesus is trying to teach. That the culture outside of the kingdom culture is in decay. It needs preserved. The culture around you is in a constant state of ruin. When Jesus teaches that you are to be the salt of the earth, it's implied that the earth needs salting. It's dying. And the ethic of the kingdom is that you, as a Christian, can do something about it. Salt is very powerful. It penetrates it has a natural ability to dig into whatever it touches. Has anyone accidentally got salt in a paper cut? Terrible. It gets into whatever it touches. It's not passive. Salt is the active agent in preservation. In Jesus' imagery is that Christians, as the salt of the earth, are supposed to actively preserve the places that they inhabit. Christians, as the salt of the earth, are meant to actively preserve the places they inhabit. We're not meant to be passive. You are meant to be the catalyst for moral preservation wherever you are. You're not meant to join in for sure. And you're not meant to sit by. You're meant to be the catalyst for moral preservation. Once again idea of being salt and light is that wherever you happen to be is a better place because you're there. The moral decay is preserved because of your presence. And that's a, that's a powerful life. Continue on with verse 13. But if salt has lost its taste, how should, it be, how should its saltiness be restored? It's no longer good for anything. So how can salt lose its saltiness? I asked myself this question, and there's way smarter people than me, so I typed it and found it. What I found out is that salt is a very stable chemical compound. I mean, it's really hard to make salt not be salt. And around the Dead Sea, 
there was commonly a compound of white dust that would form and make its way into the nearby towns, and everyone needed salt. So people would gather up this white dust, this white powder. It was a residue powder. It looked like salt. It actually had some salt properties because the Dead Sea was full of salt. And so they would pick up this white dust, and then they would put it on their meat, and their meat would die. Their meat would die because it was nothing more than an imitation of the real thing. It looked like salt. It didn't act like salt. It looked like salt and it didn't act like salt. Imitation of salt, although it looks similar, is not salt and doesn't have the same power as salt. This is the same way that there is a major difference between a true Christian and an imitator. And Jesus is going straight to the heart. You can look like you do all the right things, and your heart can be far from God. You can have a checklist religion, but when it comes to being salt, the imitation doesn't work. If you've ever been around someone that's being genuinely transformed in Christ versus being around someone who checks off the list and calls it Christianity, it is is incomprehensible how different they are. One you want to be around, and one you want to run away from. A life not transformed by a list of rules, but being made new in the daily rest in Christ is powerful and penetrative, and it preserves decay. It's the only thing that preserves the real thing, not the imitation. So that's salt. That's what we're meant to be as salt. Let's look at light. You are the light of the world. A city on a hill cannot be hidden. Light's a little easier to understand, for, for me at least, because I think I'm still afraid of the dark. Like, for some reason our house creaked when I was a kid, which probably everyone's houses creaked, but it would, if the lights were off and I was walking to my room, I, I promised there was a monster behind me. Something was going to get me. Some, and still, I have this irrational fear. Like, I'm 6'4", uh, last in-body scan said 265. I don't know. I'm up there. Body, body fat's cutting down a little bit. I'm a big guy. And still, when it's dark, if it's pitch black in our house, I'm kind of afraid a little bit. Like someone's going to come get me. Light is easier to understand because light expands. Everything that light touches immediately illuminates immediately illuminates. You can see light for miles. This blew my mind. The average human can see one lit candle for up to 1.6 miles. The average human can see one lit candle for up to 1.6 miles. That's just a tiny candle. And I was going to have this great explanation how in the Lord of the Rings, Gandalf had to light these beacons, but the last time I gave a Lord of the Rings uh, explanation or illustration. People like don't like Gondor or something. So I'm going to talk about something else. <laughs> I remember one time I was driving to Denver. One of my best friends lives in Denver. And I was coming from the east. And if you've ever driven in the Midwest from the east, you know that it's really, really, really flat. My dad's family is from western Nebraska. And it is flat. There's nothing. I mean, you can see forever. And I was driving into Denver, and it was night, coming from the east, and I looked up over the crest of the horizon, and I can see Denver. And it blew, I was shocked. 
I could see Denver. I looked down at my GPS. I'm like, I must be five minutes away from my destination. I was 50 miles, an hour and 10 minutes from Denver. And I could see this entire city because if you've ever been to Denver, you know that Denver is literally a city set on a hill. It is a city set on a mountain. And I could see it for miles and miles and miles. Light has no other option but to shine. It doesn't have a choice. And Jesus affirms that Christians are the light of the world. The light of the world. Now here's a quick clarification. Jesus claims of himself, I am the light of the world. And then he says about Christians, you are the light of the world. So how can Jesus be the light of the world and we be the light of the world? It's on your notes. It's this great word called derivation. And derivation is developing and obtaining something that you would not have without an outside source. It's developing and obtaining something that you would not have without an outside source. It's that you are something not because you have always had it, but because it has been granted to you. Better explained in this context, derivation is that you are the light of the world because the true light of Jesus lives in you. You aren't the light on your own, which for some reason I think that I can be. You're not the light on your own. The light derives from a better light. It's that because the very nature of Christ lives in you, you become the light of the world because He is the light of the world. You shine not because of who you are on your own, but because of who Christ is in you. And the metaphor of the Sermon on the Mount is that if you've got Jesus, you've got the light. And when light shines, darkness flees. It has no option. You turn a light on in a dark room and the whole room is illuminated. Even dim lights still shine. You can, it's a little less scary. Verse 16 clarifies what letting your light shine means. He says, In the same way, let your light shine before others so that they may see your good works and give glory to your Father who is in heaven. So what does it mean to let your light shine? It's that your good works produced by the Spirit are evident to the world. The good that you do is a result of who you are becoming in Christ. To let your light shine is to have what you do be influenced by who you are. And what you do is a direct result of who you are becoming in Christ. The light is bright. That's why when you get around people who are genuinely being changed in Christ, you never want to leave them. If I'm around someone who's genuinely being transformed from the inside out, I'll sit by that fire till 6 in the morning. Because everything they say is interesting because it's coming from a, a better source. Jesus gives a clear call to Christians. Don't hide who I have made you to be. Shine. And this means as followers of Jesus, you're not to hide the truth you know about Jesus, and you're not to hide the truth about who He is making you to be. And that one's way harder. It's way harder to not hide who Jesus is making you to be. Because you get around people that you've known forever and it's so easy to just do exactly what 
you've always done. But we're not to hide. Bonhoeffer says that a community of Jesus which seeks to hide itself has ceased to follow him. Rather than conforming or hiding, we are to be exactly who we are in Christ, exactly where we are. Letting your light shine means that the space that you inhabit is a better place because you're there, not worse. Now remember, this sermon, everything about this sermon is meant to overwhelm you. It's it's especially meant to overwhelm your flesh. And when I've read the Sermon on the Mount in the past, I've always remembered, like when we talk about lust and we talk about money and we talk about anger, of course those are supposed to overwhelm me. Those are tough, right? But Jesus means for salt and light to be overwhelming as well. And I don't know about you, but it is overwhelming for me. The weight of being salt and light is way too heavy for me. I, just yesterday is a great example again. I'm not, my flesh is always going to bow up. Always. I'm always going to want vengeance for myself. I try to, I, I hate when someone says that Alex did this, and I'm going to go find out who said it, and I'm going to tell him you were wrong. It's, it's what my flesh is going to do. It's not possible for me to be salt and light without the Spirit of God. Not only do I just say that, I know it, because I live it like, Seven out of seven days. So what are we supposed to do if we're overwhelmed? Well, the Apostle Paul gives one of my favorite encouragements in relief. In 2 Corinthians chapter 3, and I forgot to put it in your notes, and that's my B. Please forgive me. 2 Corinthians chapter 3 and chapter 4, Paul is expanding on this call of Christians to be salt and light. He says that every believer is now a minister of the new covenant. Every believer is a light of the gospel. It's it's a really incredible two chapters. And if you read it without verses 17 and 18, which is kind of just slipped in there, you would think, okay, I can do this on my own. But he says something amazing in verses 17 and 18 of 2 Corinthians chapter 3. He says, Now the Lord is the Spirit, and where the Spirit of the Lord there is freedom. And we all, talking about believers, with unveiled face, which just means you have eyes to see Jesus, with unveiled face, beholding the glory of the Lord, are being transformed into the same image from one degree of glory to another. For this comes from the Lord who is the Spirit. Paul is affirming that we are to be salt and light, and then he gives us relief. How do you become salt and light? You become transformed by Christ. With unveiled face, you look at Christ. When people see you, they are to see Jesus. And that's something impossible to do. But Paul says that there is a way for people to see Jesus in you. And that is that you, re- that you rest in beholding who He is. You get with Jesus. It's an amazing countercultural truth. How do you become more like Jesus? Rest in Jesus. How do you be salt and light? Look at the passage and invite Jesus into it. Being salt and light is only effective, only effective, than what, uh, only effective, not about what you can do, but who you are becoming. And it's great relief for me. It's great relief for me because who I am becoming is based on God's power 
and not in my own strength. That as I get with Christ, as I rest with Jesus, He's making me more like Him. And when that happens, the salt preserves and the light shines. Titch, you can come on up, and I'm going to pray for us, and we'll take communion. Jesus, thank you so much for being the better salt in the better light. And um, Lord, I just pray this morning that we would have our hearts searched, the depths of our hearts searched by your word, and that you would overwhelm our flesh and you would bring balm and relief to our hearts and to our souls. I trust that you'll do that because it's what you always do. In your name, Jesus, amen. Thank you for listening. Check out our website at southsideworcester.com.